Thanks for joining with us today for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. And I'm Tenery Taylor. Several years ago, marine biologist Misty Peg Tran had a dream come true in the form of a 14-foot-long dead fish someone sent to her. Now, you or I might not get excited by a dead fish, but this one, this one is so rare that only 19 have been sighted off the California coast since 1901. We're talking about the oarfish, a huge fish that lives generally deep in the ocean. It's a wonder, quite unlike most fish we're familiar with, even though it does have a resemblance to an eel. But we want to introduce you to it now, along with Misty Peg Tran herself. She's an associate professor of biological sciences at California State University, Fullerton. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you for having me. Now, give us a feel just for the size of the oarfish. Yeah. So actually, I work with with a whole bunch of big fishes. So to me, it's actually quite small. But um <laughs> To everybody else, I mean, this is a fish that um, usually here off of California, when we get them, they're they're somewhere over around 10 feet. Um, they actually can grow much larger, um, up to about 26 feet or so. But really, here we usually get them in that 10 to 14 foot range. And and what do they look like? I mean, when I saw the pictures, they did remind me of an eel. Yeah, so they have that long, slender body, very similar to an eel, um, but they're actually unrelated completely. Mm. Um, what makes them really special and the way that you can always identify an oarfish is that they're in a family of fishes that are all bound together by bright, just scarlet red fins and silvery bodies that, um, when the fish is still alive, actually looks a bit like a mirror. You can actually almost see your reflection um, in the skin. Mm. And the fish is completely scaleless. So it's just that that beautiful silvery color with just a few little bony projections that run along the surface. So um, in terms of fishes, it's actually it's one of the most magnificent fish that you can you can see. Um, but it actually only stays like that for a few hours after it dies. And then it kind of turns just all brown. Oh, so by the time the researchers get it, you don't get to see that that beautiful mirror. Um, and I should ask, how many people have actually seen them in real life? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I don't know what the number would be. You mean for living? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, is it what I'm saying? Is it is it common to to run across one? You know, it's not as uncommon as as we sort of like to spin the tail that they're just so mysterious and you never see them. Certainly, um, you know, they're sort of a an anciently known fish, especially in Japan. So, I mean, there have always been these fish that have stranded. Um, and so I would say quite a few people have seen them uh, over, you know, the many years. But to actually see them live is only a handful of people who've seen them in submersibles. So that's really the, where it comes into being this sort of rare fish is seeing them alive and in their natural habitat. Right, right. So and which is where? Uh, so they're um, a fairly deep water fish, um, but actually not deep water compared to other fishes. So they usually range somewhere in the 30 to 200 meters or about um, 1,000 feet depth. So well under the surface, um, you know, divers aren't going to come across it just by going out and scuba diving. They're, they're well below that. They're in a zone called the mesopelagic where um, you used to think of, of fishes in that area that are those light up fishes like angler fishes and hatchet fishes that you would see in, in videos like Finding Nemo. Yeah. And um, do we have a sense of how plentiful they are if people aren't seeing them very much in their natural habitat? <laughs> You know, um, we really don't know what their population numbers are. Um, that's one of those sort of mysteries of their biology. But we do have a sense that they are probably fairly plentiful. Um, worldwide, they they wash up with some regularity. Um, you know, there's usually one every couple of years or so, which tells us that there's at least a pretty large number out there that we're able to see them when they wash up. But we also do know a little bit about their biology. And we know that, um, you know, when they do spawn their eggs, which is basically releasing them out into the water, they're doing this 
in the millions, around 3 million eggs at a time. And so, um, you know, even if they didn't have a large success with reproduction, they're still going to have in the, in the thousands um, every time that they, they spawn of babies. So we think that we have a fairly healthy um, population out here, at least in California. And I, I watched some videos of them on YouTube, and I just, I mean, they're almost mesmerizing. Will you describe for us how they move? Because I, I said they look like eels, and they're not related to eels, and they don't <laughs> even actually move like eels, even though they kind of look like they ought to. Yeah, yeah. They're they're wild, really. Um, so you're right. They do look like eels. And there are a lot of fishes, actually, um, out there that sort of have that elongated body form. And um, so actually, for a long time, we thought that they were going to move just like eels as well in that kind of slithery snake-like motion. But that's not actually what they do. Um, they are capable of using that type of locomotion for sure. Um, but they usually use that only if they need to make a fast getaway. So they'll kind of slither very quickly away and then they'll go back to their normal locomotion, which is um, basically they keep their bodies just um, kind of pencil straight. And then they move the top dorsal fin um, which is, you know, a really delicate fin actually on this fish. Um, and it's just made of uh, several hundred bones that are working together. And it creates this nice S curve to that fin. And it runs all the way down from the head to the tail in this sort of almost like a fairy-like motion, you know, um, down the tail as they move. And they're really not very strong swimmers for the most part. So they mostly are staying mostly uh, motionless in the water they certainly can move around, but they're not going to be moving around like you would think of maybe a tuna fish with a, a very strong force at, at all. And and does the fact that you say they're not strong, does that have to do with their bones or spine? Because that's kind of a different, too, from other fish. Absolutely. Yes. That's an intuitive question from you. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're a... a middle of the ocean fish. And as a middle of the ocean fish, there's a very high pressure force. So you can imagine um, if you were to send down a styrofoam cup um, into that environment, as you go deeper, that cup will start to shrink and crush because of the pressure. And so these fishes at a thousand um, feet or so are under quite a bit of pressure. And so how they counteract that um, so that their bones don't break is their bones actually become very unmineralized, meaning they don't have a whole lot of calcification in their bones like you or I would have. Instead, that mineralization is replaced by essentially water and it creates this beautiful jelly-like bone. And so even when they strand, if I remove the bones, I can bend the bone basically all the way into a U-shape without it snapping or breaking like you would think of with mm -hmm. um, you know, a turkey wishbone mm -hmm. after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. and, and so in that middle part of the ocean, what are they eating there? <laughs> well, we think that oarfish are planktivorous, which means they're eating these tiny um, microscopic um, crustaceans, much like the large uh, blue whales and other baleen whales and actually some of the largest sharks. Uh, we know that partially from um, their gill rakers, which are their structures inside their mouth that are used for filtering, but also because some of the oarfish that I've opened and others before me have opened, when we look into their stomachs, we find that it's just laden with krill, which is exactly the same food source as those large whales. Mm -hmm. And um when I was reading about this, somebody compared their their bodies kind of to a straw. Will you talk about how they actually ingest food? <laughs> yeah, they they are wild how they ingest food. So uh, a lot of filter feeders, just to back up for a brief moment, do so by either sort of creating this really big um, wave as they move through the water with their mouths open and they're just sort of continuously swallowing, you know, water and plankton and processing. But that's not what these guys do. These ones actually sort of um, protrude their mouth in a way that they kind of throw it out in front of their face. And when they do that, um, the mouth gets smaller into almost what you would think of as a straw, right? A very small opening and a long tube. And then they create exactly what you would do with a straw, which is a suction pressure. And so just like you suck 
milkshakes and sometimes with a very thick milkshake you have to suck very hard they do the exact same thing but instead of having that straw they have a very elongated mouth which is pretty cool <laughs> well we can hear the excitement in your voice misty pig tran <laughs> and um i i mentioned at the beginning that this project was like a dream come true for you um and I hope I'm not overstating that, but I just want no. you to talk about <laughs> when did your fas fascination with the oar fish start? Yeah, um, that's funny. I was just talking about this with my, my husband <laughs> about a week ago. Um, and it actually started in the third grade, if you can believe that. Um, you know, as in third grade, as Californians, um, our field trip in Southern California is to go to the L.A. Natural History Museum. And so that museum is famous for its representation of animals from the Ice Age and dinosaurs. And none of that was the thing that that stuck with me. What stuck with me was going into the Hall of Fishes and seeing the oarfish and the megamouth shark right next to each other in these long cases. And I was just, I mean, just absolutely thrilled by these just amazing fish and and reading about it as a third grader and knowing that they were super rare and I had this opportunity to see them and it was just like you know someday I want to be a marine biologist and I want to work with these two fishes and actually I've I've had the opportunity to work with both fishes now from the Natural History Museum um and just I mean like there couldn't be a bigger dream come true, at least in terms of my dreams, mm -hmm. um, than to have gotten the call the first time for this fish, let alone to get five of these fish um, over the course of a couple of years to study. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's absolutely just the highlight of my life, having the, gotten a chance to even, you know, put a finger on one. <laughs> well, it is so fun to talk to somebody who loves their job as much as you do. I just, <laughs> it's just a, a delight. But um, let's get down for just a second to the nitty gritty and, and brass tacks here. This is a giant fish. How do you go about like really studying uh, a 10, 15 foot long fish. Um, I mean, microscopes are, you know, I mean, you've got to, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture how, like in the lab, what do you do with this huge thing? Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I had as I got the call. What am I going to do with this fish? <laughs> and how am I going to transport it? And at the time, um, you know, I, <laughs> I actually put it in the back of my my Nissan, you know. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. In a, in a car? Way. You put a dead fish <laughs> in your right. car? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> in a cooler, but in my car. Well, and so <laughs> I, I, it's got to be falling out of that cooler. I'm sorry. This would not be allowed at my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my husband wasn't really pleased with the smell that, that was left over. It took a while. Well, managing such a large specimen must require quite a process not a one day thing. It's, it has to be planned out and it has to be, um, you know, going from the very macro level or the whole organism. And before you ever sort of slice and dice and look into it, you have to know exactly what you're going to do. So for me, it was, you know, while it was whole, I had to get a, a CAT scan of this thing so that I mm. could preserve the entire body before I ever cut into it. And then I can start to peel off layers and Every layer of this fish is more interesting than the next. So the skin is interesting, the bones, the musculature is interesting, the digestive tract, the reproductive tract. It had six foot long ovaries that we eventually looked at mm. and, and sort of staged out. And so, I mean, pulling out these ovaries that are longer than I am tall and, and you know, all of this has to go into freezers and and done in a way that we have basically armies of of students there to help out because when you have a fish and it's it's not frozen at the moment then you know you're racing against time especially in this hot southern california weather mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know the sun beating down on us because we're certainly not allowed to do this you know the initial cutting of it inside of the lab it has to all be done outside in open air where people aren't going to gag. So <laughs> well, it's definitely a process. Well, we haven't talked about, you meant, you mentioned the musculature. Um, is this a fish that people eat? It's not. Um, 
partially that's probably because it's very hard to get it because of how deep it's it's at. But it's really um, not very tasty. So I have definitely, once I got this, sort of um, got into contact with others, especially museum curators from around the world, and and talked a little bit about their experiences with these. And one um, that probably would rather I keep him nameless had had the opportunity to uh, try bits of the fish. And he said it's basically tasteless and kind of watery. And he he's sort of used to trying fish in lots of different ways. <laughs> and so he said it wasn't good eating. And part of that is probably because the mussels, um, when you look at the fish, it's very almost an orange like mussel, like you would think of a salmon. But the flavor of it is watery because it's so deep, it has to pressurize its system. Um, and it has to be able to adjust to those changes in pressure as it moves up and down in that water column. And so the mussels actually have a lot of water as well in them. And so it sort of makes sense that it's basically like a big, gushy, gelatinous blob to <laughs> eat. <laughs> mm. Now, before I let you go, I want to ask you something. I'm not sure if you know about this or not. But I've read that there's this superstition in Japan that an oarfish washing up on the shore is a sign of an earthquake. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, been a, a tale for a long time. And, you know, um, there's some truth to that, um, certainly in that oarfishes are, again, not very strong swimmers. And so they are sort of helpless to changes in currents and things that um, can actually occur with geological events. So, for example, if you have a tectonic movement, an earthquake that happens, sometimes that generates, well, if it's large enough, it can generate a tsunami, right? If it's a rather small earthquake, um, it can generate uh, waves in the ocean that will rise up to the surface. And so if a fish is over, um, you know, a spot that has an earthquake, it has the potential to be swept mm. up to mm -hmm. the surface with that rising water. And and once an oarfish is at the surface, we basically believe that it can't get back down. It's not a strong enough swimmer to go down again. Mm. And so it's it's essentially going to die. But of course, um, we know about earthquakes and that many earthquakes, they, there's a foreshocks and aftershocks and, and many different earthquakes. So sometimes you know, the idea of it predicting earthquakes could be that it's predicting the aftershocks that might be felt or the stronger earthquakes that are to come. So while it's unlikely that they are somehow sensing in the environment that there is an earthquake to come and they're rising to the surface to sort of warn us as humans mm -hmm. or warn others, um, there is probably a little bit of truth to the fact that, you know, they are um, sort of bringing warning in a way unlike what what the legends um, thought that was occurring. Mm -hmm. Misty Peg Tran is an associate professor of biological science at California State University, Fullerton. Thank you so much for introducing us to the oarfish. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Oarfish swim a little too deep to be available for human observation, which is why they remain so mysterious to us. Next, we're going to turn to some equally fascinating fish, but these ones, much more easy to observe. In fact, we're going to speak with a fish watcher, kind of like a bird watcher, but for fish. Pretty straightforward. She has some fascinating fish stories for us after this here on Constant Wonder. You're listening to Constant Wonder. The oarfish is, of course, just one of more than 30,000 species of fish in this world, many of them more beautiful or strange than you can even imagine. I want to turn now to a conversation that Tenery Taylor of our team with Helen Scales, who is a marine biologist, a diver, a surfer, a broadcaster, and author of Eye of the Shoal, A Fish Watcher's Guide to Life, the Ocean, and Everything. I'm not a bird watcher myself. I, I appreciate um, the wonder of birds, but um, I'm not very good at actually getting my binoculars out and figuring out what they are. Um, and actually half the time my head's under the water anyway. So I'm sort of doing the equivalent of wanting to see these animals, wanting to know what they are, um, and wanting to know more about their lives. Um, and yeah, so for, for me, fish are the creatures that, yeah, I just feel like there's so much to see, but you have to put yourself in their world and, uh, and look and watch 
and then they reveal themselves to you as being these extraordinary creatures that do a whole bunch more stuff than perhaps um, we generally think of. Um, so I guess that's the aim of the book, really, is to is to show that fish are a, a whole the whole load of more going on in the lives of fish than perhaps most people give them credit. And uh, and becoming a fish watcher is how you can kind of bring yourself into that world. So I'm really hoping that more people will consider that I'm not just this crazy person who watches fish, but it's something that can really bring some great wonder into your life if you uh, interact and, and watch these, these fishy creatures down beneath the water line. Now, this may be asking you to choose. Uh, it may be like asking you to choose between your children, but will you introduce us to your favorite fish? <laughs> I love this question, and I guess it uh, a lot, and I understand why, because, well, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, that also makes it quite difficult, um, being this enormous group of animals, um, tens of thousands of species to pick from. So I generally, I, I genuinely um, kind of change my mind a lot as to which is my favorite fish, maybe like on a weekly basis. Um, so I'm going to tell you about my current favorite fish, which is a brand new species. Well, it's brand new, very recently discovered species of seahorse, um, a particular group of fish that I love. In fact, I wrote a whole book just about seahorses. Um, but um, there's a new one that's just been found. Um, it's, it's been found in South Africa. Um, it's called Hippocampus Nalu. Nalu, sorry, Hippocampus Nalu. And, um, and that apparently means, the Nalu part means, here it is in the local dialect which i love it's sort of this idea that the seahorse was there all along but it's only just been spotted and it's tiny this tiny tiny little seahorse um they're maximum two centimeters so like less than half an inch i'd say um like we're talking like little fingernail pinky fingernail sort of size um and it's really only been spotted because people are spending time in the water with cameras and taking pictures and looking around for these teeny weeny weeny seahorses which are just adorable i mean really the cutest things you could find so, so the world has welcomed, just in the last few months, um, a brand new species of seahorse, which I think adds up to something like 40-something seahorses um, all around the world. Um, and this is just one of the really kind of tiny, tiny wonders that we have down beneath the waves to, to find and, and to identify and give a name to. It's just great. Helen, it's really obvious uh, from your description just of that tiny seahorse that you love fish, but... As I'm going through your book, I also feel the same enthusiasm for uh, the actual experience of diving. And, and you kind of describe it as both thrilling and at the same time contemplative. So can you explain to us what is the draw for you of putting on your gear and getting under the water? Oh, um, scuba diving, it's just, it really is the closest you can get to being a fish as well, which I, I do adore about it. Um, the sort of physical sensation is one thing that really is um, unparalleled with anything else I've done, really. Um, you know, the idea of being able to take your own air supply, fine. We haven't yet worked out how to have gills. That's too bad. But um, <laughs> we can take down a tank of air and um, and survive and breathe underwater for, you know, an hour or so at a time. And, and you lose gravity you know you leave that weight behind you're it's it's you know not only are you kind of among the fish and seeing things from their perspective and everything else in the oceans as well but um you're also you're kind of flying you know this is the closest you get i think perhaps apart from some crazy free fall i don't know jumping out of an airplane or something which i have no intention of doing but um in a very peaceful way um, you're floating um, as if, yeah, you have no weight. And that experience, especially if you've, you know, got over the, the scary part of scuba diving, and I had that too, first few dives, you know, this is an unnatural thing for humans to do, not the place where we should normally survive. Um, and there's no doubt that there's that sensation of looking up and thinking that surface is a very long way away, and I have this tank of air to keep me alive. Let's hope everything works. And it, it does, almost always does. Um, so... Uh, you know, once you've got past that that part, um, it's just, it really is like stepping into this other side of our planet that we just don't normally see. And it's a physical experience. It's, yeah, a contemplative experience. You, you can't talk to anybody most of the time. And you can now get some Uber kit that has like a face mask that you can speak into and can communicate. But I've uh, never done that. And mostly you just have a thing in your mouth, which is what you breathe through. So 
there's no way of communicating with your voice. You can signal to each other and make sure everyone else is okay, but basically it's all inside your head. And it's, um, yeah, like imagine going for a, a hike through a beautiful forest surrounded by animals that are flying and flitting past you in all directions. And, and you have just your own thoughts with you. And maybe, you know, the occasional glance at your friends you're walking with. And there is this lovely feeling of when you're diving with someone, especially someone you know well, and you can just give them a look, you know, and you're like, yep, this is great, <laughs> or whatever. You know, you can really communicate non-verbally as well uh, under the waves when you're seeing um, all sorts of things down beneath the waterline. So, um, yeah, all in all, it's, just a, it's a fully immersive experience, which sounds obvious, but it really is. The sound's completely different. Your ears are muffled with water. Um, you're floating around in this other world, and it's it is just magical, and uh, I'm pretty addicted to it, if you can't already tell. <laughs> I can, and and I'm a little um, reassured that you're you're a normal human being because you were a little bit afraid at first, but there must have been some impetus that you, some something happened where you said, oh, I know, I want to do that. I've got to get under the water. Can you, can you tell us about yeah. that? Was there one time? Yeah. I guess in terms of getting to the point where I actually had a go at scuba diving for the first time, I think that was quite gradual. That was a case of me being a kid who loved the outdoors. Um, I loved the beach the most, you know, when we went on holidays. I spent most of my childhood holidays um, in the southwest of England, down in Cornwall, which is a very rural county, the bit, the toe of England that sticks out into the Atlantic. Um, so it's very um, maritime. You know, we could get to two different coasts within a short drive. We could go and explore different sorts of beaches and cliffs and rocks. And I love that. Um, you know, and I would swim too. I've always loved water. I've always been, I think that's my element. Just That's where I just, in so many ways, feel um, very at home being in the water. Um, so I guess it was just a natural thing for me. And then as I got older, it was just uh, a kind of, and I just noticed um a local swimming pool was offering scuba diving classes. And I just thought, well, I think I'm going to try that. I was 16, I think, 17 maybe, still at high school. And uh, a friend of mine was also kind of interested. And so we thought, well, let's go along. We just did a like a tryout. And we just went along to a swimming pool. And they stuck some uh, scuba gear on, our, on us. And we went down in the pool. And even just that, there were no fish, nothing to see alive in the swimming pool. But just the sensation of doing it um, was so wonderful. Um, that at that point, you know, I knew I wanted to try this out properly. So we signed up, we did the classes, uh, every sort of Thursday night, I think after school, we would go and have our classes in the pool. And then in the classroom, we'd learn about stuff and do our exams and everything. And then came the point where we did our first open water dive. And, and that was the moment that really was a transformative moment for me, um, uh, it was not a pleasant experience, I have to say. It was March in the UK, uh, so we were just sort of at the end of winter. The water was four degrees centigrade. I'm, I'm afraid I can't tell you what that is in um, Fahrenheit. Maybe you could work it out. But it's about the temperature of uh, a glass of tonic with ice in it. That water temperature, that is that liquid temperature is what we're talking, four degrees, so pretty much just about frozen. I was in a wetsuit. <laughs> we jumped in, and I immediately thought, why am I doing this? Um, get me out of this horrible place. This wasn't even an ocean. It was in a lake. Um, it all seemed like a terribly bad idea immediately. I couldn't feel my fingers. I couldn't feel my feet. And then I saw a fish, one little fish in front of me. And I just had this incredible sensation that the I was at the aquarium wall, if you like. The, the glass in the aquarium had fallen away, and I was in the aquarium, and I could swim after that fish. Um, I, I probably couldn't have because at that point I really didn't know what I was doing with scuba diving. Now I could, but I just knew that I had that possibility of being in its three-dimensional world. I wasn't looking in anymore. I was in it. And I just wanted to stay there. Even though it was freezing cold and pretty miserable, I wanted to stay down and follow that one little fish um, and know more about it. Um, so I came up, pulled myself up and just decided that I was going to carry on doing this as much as possible, preferably maybe in slightly warmer, like nicer conditions. But uh, it's good to know you can deal with those to start with. So, And by the way, four degrees Celsius is 39 degrees uh, Fahrenheit for, for our listeners here in North America. I have to ask you about the title of your book, Eye of the Shoal. Um, I'm really used to talking about a school of fish, and I'm not as familiar with a shoal. What is the difference between a school and a shoal of fish? 
Yeah, I think this is a North American thing. I guess maybe shoal is a bit more common in England for some reason. And it also has the meaning of a shallow piece of sea, so it's a bit confusing. Um, but in my understanding, the shoal is almost the precursor to a school of fish. So roughly half of all fish species um, pretty much have to spend their entire life in among company of other fish. They don't get on at all well on their own. So if you took, say, a sardine or an anchovy and you kept it on its own, it would be very unhappy. And, and they just get kind of basically freaked out and anxious if they aren't swimming with their own kind. Um, and, and so I, I describe in the book how a shoal is really a kind of loose collection of fish that are swimming together. So it's, you know, it's a group of some size, probably more than five fish perhaps, um, up to just thousands and thousands of them. And those are the sorts of formations that you might see of fish that are just kind of swimming together but there's nothing necessarily coordinated about that gathering apart from them being in the same place. Whereas um, a school, I think, certainly scientifically, we think of it being that really extraordinary sight you get when fish are swimming together. And it's almost like they're one organism, like they're thinking as one because they're moving in, in, co in coordinated sort of sweeps of um, uh, of this incredible um, shapes that they make. Almost, yeah, it's almost as if they're all kind of sharing their own thoughts and they know where they're all, each one of them is going. Um, you see them split apart and then come back together, especially if they're being hunted by a predator. Um, and it's just this incredibly mesmerizing um, phenomenon that fish, and in similar ways that some birds do, you get things like starlings here in the UK at least that fly around the sky in what we call murmurations and they have these incredible swooping shapes. Um, a similar kind of thing. It's almost like a, a super organism of animals that are um, somehow seem to be sharing their thoughts with each other. And we know this isn't, well, we think this isn't the case with fish. You never know. We might discover something amazing um, that they are doing that. But it seems that they are mostly coordinating their movements by watching each other and seeing how their neighbors move and responding very, very quickly um, to the movements around them so that they can coordinate in this amazing kind of seething shape. And um, and I've been really lucky to have seen and sort of been experienced experienced the sensation of being within one of these schools. And um, so actually, you know, someone pointed this out to me the other day that in fact the book should be called um, Eye of the School, Eye of the Shoal, um, because it is really the schools that form these amazing kind of bait balls, circular shape of fish when they're especially if they're being attacked, say by predators, um, also feeling kind of scared that will hunch together. And I have had a sensation of, of diving in the middle of these fish so that everywhere I'm just surrounded by fish and they're all just swirling and swirling around me and you get the sort of like an eye of the storm kind of effect almost, mm -hmm. only you're surrounded by fish. Um, I want, I want you to tell us yeah. a particular story about um, once when you were doing this on Swallow Reef. Um, will you tell us yeah. about what you were studying there and... Um, and what you learned from swimming with that school of fish. Yeah, so this was um, my PhD studies. I was working in a very remote island in the South China Sea off the north coast of Borneo. It's a couple of hundred miles offshore, the kind of place that divers love to go because it's so far away from land. The water's incredibly clear. The coral reefs there were at that time very pristine and pretty much untouched and just extraordinary diversity of corals and fish and and I went there to study a particular species, which is not doing very well uh, in, across its range in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And it's this amazing big fish called a humphead wrasse. Um, they're also known as a Maori wrasse, which is, we think of the name because they have these amazing scribble patterns on their faces, um, a bit like the tattoos of, of native New Zealanders who have these incredible pictures on their faces, patterns on their faces. So they're called that. And, um, and, and it's a ras. Is that W-R-A-S-S-E? Is that, is that how you spell That's it? That's right. Okay. Ras. Okay. Yeah. Ras. So there's Perfect. loads of ras. Yeah. And they, they're, it's a big family of fish, the ras. So some of them are quite little, um, small things. And this is the biggest. Um, the humphead ras can grow to a good six feet in length, I would say, if they live that long. Um, they have very Sort of interesting lives, some fun stuff happens to them, things like they change sex, they begin life as females, and if they live long enough and get big enough, they turn into males. And the reason I went to Swallow Reef to this very remote place to study them is because it was one of the places that was known where they congregate um, once a month, like clockwork, in the same place to spawn 
so to, to mate basically these are animals that generally are quite solitary so if you see you would normally just see one mm. um but if you go to the right place at the right time you can see dozens and hundreds of these fish coming together because they mate in a great big elaborate um kind of courtship ritual there are these enormous males which are staking out their territory um and the females all turn up and they kind of swim around and the males trying to persuade each of them in turn to swim off just slightly away from the reef with him where they she will shed her eggs into the water he will shed his sperm the fertilized eggs then drift off and we think this could be why they're doing it in this spot in the reef because um, the eggs need to be away from all the hungry mouths on a coral reef when they're very small baby fish are very very tasty um, so if they can stay away uh, and get swept away from the reef for a little while then they can survive and then come back to the reef when they're a bit bigger so we think that's why they're doing this but it was, for me, uh, an opportunity to see really big animals behaving in such a way you wouldn't necessarily expect fish to. The sort of interactions I was watching between these animals was the sort of thing you expect, I don't know, lions, perhaps, in the Serengeti, or, or mammals and other, other big creatures to behave this way. Now, um, now before you yeah, get into were... what you were observing and, and what you found out, I, I want to give our listeners just a flavor for some of the danger that's involved in, in the work that you do. I, I understand you were a little bit hesitant to get out of the boat oh, when you arrived oh, there. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So we're talking this very remote, a tiny atoll um, with not much backup if anything went wrong. Um, but also the weather can be pretty fearsome and the waves could be. So we, we were um, fine when we were inside this lagoon. So it's like a circular atoll with a coral reef, like in a tear shape. But the place we needed to dive was on the outside. So as soon as you go through the uh, the cut in the reef out into the open sea, the the waves get huge. And, um, yeah, we were pretty much having to just leap off the side of the boat, taking our chances with whatever currents and whatever <laughs> um, difficulties might lay down there. Normally, I much prefer to dive when you can just nice, gently jump in the water, have a bit of time to think about what you're doing yeah. on the surface before you go down. Whereas this case was um, more of a what we call a negatively buoyant entry, which essentially means you'd fall back off the side of the boat and you drop like a stone immediately down into the water. Um, so if anything has gone wrong with your breathing kit, you know, you're going to find out when you're already a few meters underwater, which is not ideal. Luckily, nothing ever did go wrong, but it's just one of those things that you don't necessarily want to always have to, you know, you wouldn't want to put yourself in that risk if you didn't have to. But in this case, it was only a couple of times when the weather was that bad that it was a very quick entry into the water or the boat might get rushed on the reef um but then the funny thing is that you have this sort of crazy waves and conditions on the surface but as soon as you as soon as i got a few meters down it's so peaceful and quiet you would have no idea what was going on up there and these really were some of the dives i've done in the most extraordinary clear water so i described that sensation of flying before in these this in this place it really genuinely felt like that because you weren't the water was so clear, it was almost like it wasn't there. And you really did feel like you were floating around in, in midair. It was extraordinary. And the reef is just laid out in front of you in all these colors. And then there's so many fish. Um, it was like another world. It really was. It was amazing. And so why did you choose um, this particular fish in this place? Were, were they threatened? I mean, was there a problem that you really wanted to study? Uh, yeah, so... Um, the humphead rat, unfortunately, is one of these fish, one of these species, I should say, that are highly in demand for um, for the international trade. Uh, in this case, it's that they are um, highly desired in mostly in China, but in other countries around the world with Chinese populations where they're seen as a delicacy. And so the price is very, very high on this particular species. And um, and so for the last few decades now, they've been hunted um, on reefs across their range. And often um, really de heavily depleted. Um, fishermen can earn good money for catching these species, whether they're small um, juveniles or whether they're these enormous males. These animals are really valuable. So, of course, they are, you know, they're being heavily hunted. So one reason I went to this island originally was because it had a large population. And that's a rare thing now. You do not see big populations um, of humphead rats. They're generally just not doing very well. And to see them spawning is an even rarer occurrence. Um, so really, I mean, it was partly to understand the biology, which is why I was there, but also to understand if, it, in fact, this way of mating is making them even more vulnerable to exploitation, to fishing. 
um, because kind of imagine that if you know where they're spawning as a fisherman, you could turn up and catch mm. as many as you want. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the, the really sad news about what happened is that several years after I was working in this island, that seems to be exactly what did take place on that particular atoll. Was I heard from some other marine scientists who then visited there that they, they returned and where there had been at least 100, maybe 150 of these big fish, they couldn't find any at all. And this is not a very big atoll. I mean, it's not sort of... You, you could get a good sense from a few dives if there are fish here or not. And um, and they couldn't find any humphead rats at all, no no adults. And the only explanation they could come up with was, uh, and they'd had anecdotal reports that some fishermen had come in and they had basically targeted, we think, potentially this spawning aggregation, this site where they all come together and taken the fish away. Um, and the really heartbreaking part of it was the way I was doing my studies was by looking at those patterns on the fishes' faces. So they like um I worked out from my So are they different? Are they different? Every yeah, fish has a exactly. slightly different pattern. Every fish has a slightly different pattern. That's one thing I found out. I was mm. filming them and I was analyzing the images and showing that like fingerprints. Each fish has a different a unique arrangement of um of lines running back from their eyes. They, these fish, I mean they're big, beautiful big fish. I should describe them for you probably. They're great big when they're especially the males. They're blue. They have a big bump on their heads, hence humphead rat, um, and they have great big blue lips. We think this is all part of being a big, beautiful fish uh, trying to attract the mates of the female mates. You need to have a great big, lovely blue face. Um, but for these fish, it seems to work. And they have kind of turquoise scribbles across their cheeks and then two lines or three lines in black, like an eyeliner going back from their eyes. And these are subtly different between each individual. So I, could, so I got to know who was who. And it was by doing that that I could work out how many there were in the population and, and how much they, how often they came back. Because before that, we didn't know. Did they come once a day? Did they come um, one time only? And I, I showed that they would come back repeatedly and mate over about a week's worth of mating. And they would come back. The females would keep returning and, and keep produce, reproducing over and over. Um, so, yeah, those fish I got to know as individuals were all taken away and um, sent off to the trade and in fish, and I should say these are fish that are kept, they're caught alive. Um, the idea is the high price comes from diners being able to go into a restaurant and see an aquarium tank full of live fish and choose which one they want to eat, and then it's freshly prepared. So it's particularly fresh and apparently particularly tasty, though I've never tried myself. Um, so these fish were shipped off, presumably to China, and uh, sent into the, the uh, aquarium trade, um, the, the dining aquarium trade. Um, and this is something that carries on. My studies were a few years ago. So they, um, but, I just, uh, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. They kill on mm. demand a six foot long fish when someone uh, orders yeah. it up. Is you pay a lot. You pay a lot for that one. Those those ones are the ones that have a very very high price tag on their heads. And um, we're talking probably thousands of dollars. I'm not sure exactly what it is right now. But yeah, I mean, these um, maybe not. The, I don't know how often the six footers actually show up in the trade, but certainly one that you'd have to you'd have a a hard time one person picking this fish up. And then it would be for a banquet. You would, mm. you know, you would bring this fish out to impress your friends sort of thing and uh, have a great feast of this, this one fish. Um, but it does carry on. The trade is, is continuing um, in places like Hong Kong and China. Um, but one good thing I do know is that um, scientists and conservationists are now using those face patterns to actually um, track individual fish um, in the trade to try and just provide more information about um, which fish are coming through because the, the trade is legal but it should be um, only allowed now under permit um, but it, it seems a lot of this is actually um, a lot now which are not necessarily being tracked properly by the system and so now they're asking members of the public with cameras who are going to restaurants or seeing these fish just in windows at restaurants to take a picture of the face and then with some clever computer technology, which sadly I didn't have when I was doing my research. I wish I had. I did mine all by hand. But now there are um, algorithms that will identify that individual fish based on um, its facial patterns so that those animals can actually be tracked through the trade now and we can get a better idea of, of the numbers that are coming through um, and and where they're going and so on. So a sort of citizen science aspect of this has mm. been recently coming up um, through Hong Kong and um, going to show us more hopefully about what 
what is happening with these fish and, and just how much trade is infecting them as well in the wild. So, Helen Scales is a marine biologist and diver. She's also the author of Eye of the Shoal, A Fish Watcher's Guide to Life, the Ocean, and Everything. When we come back from a quick break here on Constant Wonder, we'll hear about certain fish that clean off bacteria from other fish and can tailor their services to the client fish's preferences. How can they be that smart? Find out in just one minute here on Constant Wonder. Great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor, and we're speaking with Helen Scales, who's a marine biologist and diver. She's also the author of Eye of the Shoal, A Fish Watcher's Guide to Life, the Ocean, and Everything. Now, I would like to talk in our in our last few minutes together, Helen, about fish intelligence. We've seen that they are ingenious social creatures, but they have these relationships with other fish. And you have written about a cleaning station that some fish will set up for other species. And these fish even can learn what services the other species like. I mean, I'm just kind of blown away by this. Will you explain what these cleaning stations are and how it um, illustrates fish intelligence? Absolutely. So um, these are amazing things to watch. Uh, On coral reefs around the world, you'll see um, if you're swimming along, you might notice a sort of a spot in the reef where there's a kind of interesting collection of different fish that have all come together and something strange seems to be happening. And if you look closely, you might notice that um, even if there are some bigger fish, maybe things like grouper, perhaps even one of those humphead wrasse I was talking about, um, but amongst them, there might be an even tinier fish and actually another type of wrasse. Um, these are called cleaner wrasse, that's the general name. Um, they're about, I, I guess, the kind of size of a cigar, perhaps. Um, generally with a, a black and white stripe, maybe a, a yellow stripe um, and a blue stripe. And they are basically, they've evolved to be the the, the hygienists of, of the reef. The dental hygienists, the nurses of the reef, they're cleaning up other fish. <laughs> and they, they stake out these territories um, and the other fish learn to come there when they need to be cleaned. Um, and studies have shown just how important these things are and for the health of those fish. Like this really is important for them. If you take, and people have just temporarily taken cleaner wrasse away from their, uh, their territories and so the fish don't get cleaned. And they really, they get mostly covered in parasites. There are these blood-sucking little ticks, basically like the ticks of the reef. Um, that will clamp onto fish and suck their blood, and and they just they will get more and more of them if there are no wrasse to clean them off, and um, bits of dead skin, you know, bits of just the stuff that the fish can't themselves clean off. It's not like a cat or a dog who can clean themselves, but fish really don't have that ability to do it themselves, so they need another fish to do it for them. <laughs> and I guess the most extraordinary thing you'll see if you do spot a, a cleaning station is when a very big predatory fish, one that would normally eat a small delicious fish like a cleaner ass will open up its mouth and the small fish will climb straight in pick the bits of food from off of its teeth give it a nice clean and polish and swim straight back out and the, the predator does not eat them even though it absolutely could it could very easily just snap its jaws shut and it would have a very easy, easy tasty dinner um you know it's, it comes straight into its mouth it seems ridiculous but the more we study these cleaner rats, we notice that, in fact, those little fish are actually manipulating those big fish into not eating them and to trust them. Um, so they, they how, need how do they do that? How do they do that? Yeah, I mean, it's like one of these sort of, it's like a, it's a mutual benefit for both of the fish. And the big fish come to realize that they need these small fish to clean them up. They do pretty bad, poorly. They suffer in their health if they don't get to visit the fish. Um and the little fish clearly need uh, need their food, and they've evolved to eat these parasites. Um, but uh, they basically have learned to kind of soothe and calm down the big fish. They will actually give them the equivalent of like a fish uh, sort of back massage. They rub themselves <laughs> over their fish. They give them this sense of um, tactile. Uh, it sort of uh, yeah, like having a, having a massage. And and in fact, there are studies have shown that things like sort of stress hormones in a fish will drop 
when they go and have their themselves cleaned, it's like going to the spa. It's really a nice sensation for them. You know, it's, I don't think it's too anthropomorphic to say that these fish enjoy themselves when they get cleaned. They sort of go into a trance and they, they feel like they can see that they're enjoying this sensation of having this little fish stick over their body and, um, and calm them down. And even more, we know that this is probably the case because not only do these little fish seem to manipulate the big fish into not eating them, but occasionally those little fish will cheat. And they won't just take parasites, but they'll take a bite of flesh or a bite of the slime on the outside of the fish, which <laughs> sounds disgusting, but actually it's pretty nutritious. It even has a sunscreen in it, um, which helps them to stop them getting sunburned. Um, and sort of, you know, uh, impacts of UV light in, in uh, tropical reefs can be kind of bad for a fish. So having sunscreen in their, in their uh, slime on top of their skin is really important. Um, and so a rat can actually eat a bit of that slime and keep the sunscreen and put it into its own skin so it can protect itself. Um, and they do this occasionally. Usually they won't cheat on a predator because that's too dangerous. They know that the big ones with the big teeth are the ones that could eat them, so they don't cheat on those. But they will cheat on herbivores. They're like a harmless fish that generally just eats uh, seaweed. They're not going to cause too much trouble. <laughs> and occasionally those rats will take a little extra bite. A little something more. They do what they really want is to eat that mucus. It's much more nutritious, and it, as I say, it gives them the sunscreen. Um, but when they do, they apologize afterwards. This is how smart these fish are. They know they they've stepped, they've stepped over this line, um, <laughs> and they've done what they shouldn't do. But they can apologize by giving an extra special rub, and they will rub and say I'm sorry. And then usually, if they haven't, you know, upset that fish too much it won't swim off because what they, they rely on those fish coming back. Some of those bigger fish will come back dozens of times in a day to the same uh, cleaning station. It's like having your favorite spa. You keep going back. Um, so they develop this client relationship and the little fish will remember individual clients. This is how we sort of know that even though it's a tiny little fish with a tiny, tiny brain, it's got really quite complex abilities to remember. They can remember hundreds of individual fish. They know how to treat individuals, whether it should be something to be very careful of or one you can cheat occasionally. Um, and, and this is how they've evolved this very specialist role on the reef of being the cleaners. But they have to have this, they've evolved this intelligence in order to survive, really, to get by with um, this very strange diet and to be able to interact with other fish. Um, so it's really, uh, really very eye-opening. We've had this long-held theory, really, that... Um, you know, in order to be intelligent, you need to be like humans. You know, this is the view we've had for years. It's like human intelligence, primate intelligence is the core of, of where this all is. Big brains, big primate brains is what, what intelligence means. But the fish are showing us that there's different ways of being intelligent, and they're doing it in a different way. They haven't got huge brains, but they've clearly evolved ways to have pretty complex behaviors that we don't really maybe expect to see in fish. Constant Wonders, Tenery Taylor speaking with Helen Scales. Scales is a marine biologist, a diver, a surfer, a broadcaster, and author of Eye of the Shoal, a fish watcher's guide to life, the ocean, and everything.